0: Father, we come to you as King of kings and Lord of lords, as our creator, our sustainer. And more than that, the one who loves us more than your own existence. And we come to you knowing this, and we're coming asking for the greatest gift we could possibly ask for, and that is the gift of your Holy Spirit. We're asking that You would pour it out, that our hearts would be emptied so that You could fill us and that You could speak to us, that You could teach us the things that we need to know today. Lord, we're living in urgent times. The world around us is breaking at the seams and we need a revelation of Jesus like we've never seen before. That can only take place through the power of Your Holy Spirit. So we give You full permission this morning. Would You please take over? Would You please speak? Would You please... Bring glory to your name for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It must have been a beautiful afternoon when they began to set sail. They'd been the island of Crete and they were about to, to sail across to hoping to make it a bit further. At first, their progress had been halted by some winds that had caused them a bit of problems. But today, everything looked favorable. It was a beautiful day for sailing. The wind had died down, and they were ready to sail in the right direction. As they set sail, everyone was in agreement. The sailors all said, we've got to go. The the merchant men on the ship said, we've got to get... On our way to Rome, we've got to make progress. We've got to get to a better place to winter for the season. Everybody was in agreement except for one individual. One man on this ship who had told the centurion, I don't think we should sail. In fact, God has told me that we shouldn't sail. But who was he? He was just some prisoner that was supposed to go to Rome. Why should the centurion listen to him? When everybody else knew the right thing, and so they set sail. They began to head out on that beautiful day, feeling like everything was fine, feeling like it was going to be a beautiful day to sail, but they had no idea what was waiting for them just around the corner. It's extremely dangerous to think that everything's okay in your life, to be headed down one road and to actually be in extreme danger, about to face a storm that is bigger than you know how to handle. If you're facing that and you think you're okay and you're not looking for help, you're in for big trouble. That's what Jesus has to say to us in the message to the Laodicean church. Go with me there to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. This is a, a church that comes right after the Philadelphian church a couple weeks ago we talked about how the the bridge between these two churches took place in the year 1844 when that special message of judgment came when they thought that Jesus was coming back in the clouds not realizing that Jesus was actually moving into a different phase of his ministry on their behalf in the most holy place of the sanctuary in the in the heavenly in the, in heaven so here we find this church that begins in the year 1844 in prophecy. Verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. The word Laodicean comes from two words. Laos in Greek means people, and Dicea means righteousness or judgment. So these are the people of righteousness, the people of judgment, the people who are undergoing a judgment, maybe even we could say that brings righteousness. Here's a a group of people who are living in this critical hour, this urgent time when people realized back in the 1800s that something was going on on this planet. People realized that we were entering into a time period where Jesus was doing something in our behalf. So here comes a message to this specific group of people, this group of people who includes you and me. You know, all these churches are applicable to us. There's messages in each of the seven churches that definitely apply practically to our life. But this isn't just about us in a a way that we can apply it, but this actually is a prophecy about you. This is a prophecy about me. This is a prophecy about Christians who are living on the verge of the second coming. This is probably one of the most urgent messages in all of Scripture, So let's pay close attention, shall we? These things says the Amen. Jesus often in his teachings would say, Amen, Amen, I say to you, like truly, truly, surely, surely. It's really, this is a true statement. The Amen, the true one. The faithful and true witness. The one who's trustworthy. The one who knows the true story. The one who can see the end from the beginning. Who knows what's going on. But not only that, He's the beginning of the creation of God, R.K. He's not the one who was first created, but he's the source of creation. Jesus is the one who began all of creation. It's because of Jesus that we live and move and have our being, Colossians tells us. Jesus is the source of all creation, all of existence. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Jesus says, I am the true witness. I know what's going on in your life. I understand. I've seen what is happening in this church. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Laodicea was a, a city that was in the Lycus River Valley, now, it was a fairly prosperous part of Asia Minor. We, we looked at a lot of prosperous cities here. This city had a lot going for it. A lot of trade passed through this city. It was a city that was known for its uh, black dyed wool that it sold. its merchants sold. It was also known for its eye salve that it sold in little tubes. It was, there was a famous ophthalmologist of that day who Received its training, so there was actually a medical school there for people to learn how to treat eye ailments. Lots of things going for this city. It was a wealthy city, it had lots of wealth. In fact, there's records of the Jews who lived there and the taxes that took place, and it's very evident that these were powerful individuals who lived there, wealthy individuals who lived in the city of Laodicea. But Laodicea had one problem similar problem that we're beginning to face here in California. That was a water shortage. See, Laodicea didn't have its own source of water. This is fine on an average day because Laodicea was a city that had aqueducts that came from another nearby city, Hierapolis. But for the Laodiceans, if they were besieged, this could create a significant problem because they didn't have their own source of water. They weren't worried about it, though, because they lived in a time of peace. They lived in a time of prosperity when there wasn't much going on in their city. One of the worst disasters they faced was in 8060 when there was a massive earthquake that destroyed part of Laodicea. That earthquake was so severe that Rome actually sent and offered funds to Laodicea saying, hey, we'll help you rebuild your city. How do you think the La- that Laodicea responded? That's all right. We're okay. We can handle it. We're a wealthy city. We can rebuild it ourselves. Laodicea was extremely self-sufficient. Laodicea thought that they had it all together. They thought that they could provide for themselves. And in fact, they built these aqueducts to Hierapolis to bring the water to them. Now, Hierapolis was a city that had hot springs where this boiling water was coming out of these springs. It was a resort place where people would go to to go to these hot springs. And so Laodicea said, we're going to bring this water to our city. Now the problem was it was about four miles away, four to six miles away. So by the time that boiling hot water got to Laodicea, it was no longer boiling hot water. It was no longer that amazing hot spring to get into, but it was just lukewarm water. And not only that, but you know what water is like from a hot spring. If you've ever drinking from a hot spring before, oftentimes, in fact, we, we have a little bit of that flavor in the back bathroom here. And last week, I, there were two individuals here who needed a shower in the afternoon. They hadn't had a shower in four days. They were visiting and wanted some help. So took them back there to have a shower. And afterwards, the guy came out and he's like, wow, volcano water. That's amazing. <laughs> If you've ever smelled sulfur before, you ever drinking water from a hot spring, it's not so pleasant. So you imagine it's a good thing if you go to a hot spring and it's boiling hot, but if you go to a hot spring and it's lukewarm and you have the smell of sulfur, it's no longer so good. In fact, it can become nauseating. This is the illustration that Jesus uses using the real life circumstance of the, Laod- the city of Laodicea He says, I would that you were hot, or I would that you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, it just makes me want to vomit you out. Now notice, as he's talking about this group of people, a lot of the churches before this have had theological problems or issues, or maybe they've had theological uh, things that were positive about them. You had those who were not tolerating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You had those who were holding to the teachings of Balaam. You had all these different theological things going on. But if you look through in the church of Laodicea, that's not the concern. The concern isn't their theology is wrong. What is the concern here? We go back. What did it say in verse 15? I know your what? Your works. I know your works. That they're neither cold, Nor hot. I wish that they were one or the other, but I know that your actions, the way that you're living out what you see about Jesus, your theology, your understanding of God, the way that you're actually living it out is just lukewarm. That's what we find in Christian history. You look in the 1800s and they were on fire. They were going quickly to the world, taking the Gospel to the world, but something began to happen in our society. Especially here in America, we've gotten more wealth. We've gotten more uh, settled down in life. And you begin to see that we're no longer loving zealously like Jesus wants us to love this world. Not talking about theology. Not talking about right doctrine. But for the Laodicean people, for you and for me. Individuals who are living in this last time period... God wants us to have a love for the truth. Second Thessalonians makes that very clear, but not only that, God says there's something missing here, and what 's missing is on fire works for Jesus. Because if, if you were cold, that would be water could be refreshing when it's cold. but not only that, when we recognize our need, when we 're cold like and not hot, we can recognize that we actually need to be heated up. But when we're lukewarm, we feel okay. We feel all right with what's going on. I find that to be all too true in my own life. I know about the truth. I know about Jesus. I know all that He shared with me. But it's all too easy to get wrapped up in life and to forget what He actually wants me to do with my life to forget about the people he wants me to love, to forget about being involved with his work, about his kingdom growth. And yes, I do get involved. I'll get involved in in ways that are convenient, in ways that don't take up too much of my time, that don't mess with my job and don't mess with my finances. I'll help God when it's convenient for me. I remember that was how I felt when I was training for business down at a school in Southern California. I was taking business, and I remember people saying, well, don't you want to give your life working for God? I said, yeah, someday, but first I want to become really wealthy, and I want to have a massive retirement fund, and I'll use that to then help the world, and it'll be great, and then I'll also have fun in the process. I wanted to put my stuff first, my kingdom first, but Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. So what is the solution? What is the solution to the church in Laodicea? We're going to be looking at this in more detail in coming weeks. But there's something here that's significant. He doesn't just say, hey, you're not doing enough, so I want you to go do more. The solution isn't to suddenly try to work up more works. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you don't recognize your problem. Notice what happens in verse 17. Because, so this is the reason why you're lukewarm. This is why I'm going to vomit you out. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's challenging. This is the message to you and I sitting here today Jesus is saying you don't recognize what you so desperately need. And we'll look in more detail at the things that He breaks down of exactly what we need. But here He's saying your biggest problem is you're self-deceived. You don't understand what you don't have. That's the most dangerous thing we really could face. In fact, in um, in Signs of the Times, April 9, 1902, it says this, the most hopeless... The most incurable of all sins is pride, self-sufficiency. This sin stands in the way of all advancement, all growth in grace. When we think we're okay, when we are self-deceived, when we think that, that we have it all together, when we think, well, we have the right doctrines, we understand about the Sabbath, we understand about the law, we understand these things. And Jesus isn't real to us. Jesus isn't having a real, living, on-fire relationship with us. Then in the end, it really matters nothing. In the end, it's the most deceptive of all sins to think we're okay, to think we're doing well when we're in such great need. Laodicea is the people of the judgment. Let's look at this judgment and see if this judgment scene can help us to understand how we can come out of this Laodicean condition, this condition that is all too easy for us to sink into here, especially living in America, where we don't experience religious persecution. Maybe our biggest concern can be, how am I going to pay for the next bill? But there's always things to fall back on here in America. I remember an ADRA representative came to lecture at a class at Andrews University. She said, I, I don't want to be offensive to you Americans, but you don't actually even know what real poverty is. It doesn't exist in America. She said, I'll tell you about countries that I go to where you can't find a dumpster to dig through. There's nothing moving except for a few flies. An apple will cost you $5. How is somebody supposed to even exist in that situation? But here in America, everything seems fine. We're rich and increased with goods, and we feel like we have need of nothing. Go with me to the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7. This is that scene that William Miller misinterpreted. He figured that this was actually dealing with the second coming of Jesus. And we'll look at why that is. Daniel chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 9. The Bible is very clear that there is a judgment. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 tells us that when Jesus comes back, He will come back with a reward for us, to reward each of us according to our works, according to the deeds which we've done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says that He'll reward us according to the deeds done in the body. That's why Jesus is looking at the works, not because the works are what saves us, but because the work indicates what takes place in our hearts. Here is where that judgment scene is revealed in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. So here we have thrones set up. We have the Ancient of Days there, the Eternal One. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. This is what Laodicea needs. They're lukewarm. They need some fire. They need to be lit on fire. And here's a description of the throne of the universe, and it is a throne of fire. But not only does it have fire, look at verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. There's this heavenly judgment scene where all of us and our names, those who have trusted in Jesus, are going to come up before and on those books is written the account of our lives. The decisions that we've made. Our choice to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. And this could be extremely intimidating. This could leave us today feeling like, what do I have? How am I ever going to stand in that day? How, how is it possible for me to face a judgment scene like this with a God who's thrown His fire and fire's coming out of it and He's righteous. He's wearing pure white garments and here I am. Look at all the mistakes I've made in my life. We continue reading down in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. Friends, there is hope. One like the Son of Man term often used for Jesus in the Gospels, coming with the clouds of heaven. William Miller read this phrase and he said, oh, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. That's when he's coming back at the end. But notice where he comes to. He came to the ancient of days. He came up to that throne where the court was seated, where there were myriads and myriads of angels and where the, the, the books were opened. I love this scene. It's so beautiful because It's not for the sake of God. Does God know what's in those books? Does He know the actions that you and I have committed in our lifetime? He knows the details. That's what Jesus again and again says. I know your works. I understand what you've been doing. But this judgment scene is with myriads of angels surrounding that throne. And the books are open for the sake of those angels seeing what God is doing. They can have participation in this judgment because you think about it, when somebody comes to move in next door, what do you usually do? Find out their first and last name and then Google them and find out if they're on you know, Megan's list. Find out, you know, are they criminals? What kind of background do they have? You want to know who's moving in next door to you, don't you? Who's going to be up in that apartment upstairs? You want to know what their history is, who they are, what they're like. If you were an angel and you had spent, time on earth, helping out human beings. And you had witnessed how Zach Page lived. And then in the judgment, God didn't give you any insight at all, but he just said, hey, Zach's coming to heaven. I'm bringing him up here and he's going to be your next door neighbor. Who wants to live next to Zach? They're like, well, I know at the end of his life he was trying to follow Jesus, but I remember the way he treated people. I I don't think he was loving it. I don't want that to come back into heaven. God, we've tried this before. Lucifer was a perfect creature, and look at what happened with him. I don't, Zach, I don't think we could bring Zach up here. I don't, I don't know if if that's going to work out, God. It would be hard to trust God's decision, but God is so gracious that he opens the books and he says, here's what's been going on. Here's the behind the scenes. Here's every aspect of his life. And here's how he trusted in Jesus. That's why the Son of Man shows up in this scene. It's our advocate, as it says in 1 John. We have an advocate with a Father, Jesus Christ. He is your advocate For every sin that you've ever committed, He wants to give you forgiveness and grace. And look at what the purpose of this is. Verse 14, Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him that's Jesus, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The purpose of this judgment is to set up Jesus' everlasting kingdom to give him all power in the whole universe. But not only that, go down to verse 27. After verse 26 talks about this court will be seated and it takes away the dominion of of the Antichrist and his power then verse 27 says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people. The saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. You see the purpose of this investigative judgment where the books are open. The purpose is to give the kingdom to Jesus and to all His brothers and sisters who have chosen To be covered by the blood of the Lamb. The purpose of the judgment is to give you an everlasting kingdom. Not only eternal life, but a specific role in the government of the universe throughout all of eternity. What a beautiful thing that God wants to do for you and for me. But still, there's something in me when I look at this scene of judgment. When I look at this fiery throne and I think about how am I ever going to approach a throne like that? How is my name going to come up? How could I stand in a moment like that? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4 where this same throne is described in a beautiful way. Hebrews chapter 4. Paul writing to the Hebrews and here describes again and again how Jesus is far surpassing and better than anything that came before Him. Hebrews chapter 4 We'll start in in verse 12. For the, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. James, when it tells us that we're all to be judged, it says we're to be judged by the law of liberty. That law of love, that great law of love The Word of God is to be our judge. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Jesus sees it all. We could try to hide. We may think that there are parts of our history that nobody knows about, but Jesus knows it all. He understands what we've gone through. He is the one before whom we're to give account. And he's also our advocate. He's also the one who loved you more than in his own existence. Who was willing to give up his own existence. Who thought it wasn't worthwhile living if you couldn't live forever. If you didn't have the opportunity. Goes on to say in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Seeing that Jesus, that Son of Man, has come to that throne, that He has passed through the heavens, He is now in that place of all authority in the entire universe, that Jesus is our advocate before that ancient of days. Seeing all of this, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands every temptation that you have gone through that you will go through. Jesus understands the things that the devil has used to trip you up in your life. He's been there. He understands it and he can sympathize with what you've gone through. It's amazing to have a Savior like that. He could have come as a king, he could have come separate from our sin, but he came in the midst of it to be there to sympathize with us. And then Paul says something amazing. Don't miss verse 16. This is what you and I can do. This is how you and I can approach that throne room, that judgment scene. This is what you and I can have. Let Us, therefore, because of who Jesus is, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly to the throne of God because of Jesus. If we're trusting in Jesus, we can come boldly to that throne of grace for a very specific reason. What do we come boldly to the throne of grace for? First, what did it list there? That we may find mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is forgiveness. Mercy is giving us what is, is the fact that we have sinned and we're not held accountable for it. Mercy is forgiveness and wiping out our transgressions. This is what Jesus did on the cross. At the cross, mercy and justice kissed. At that moment, Jesus took our penalty so that we could have his life so come boldly to that throne of grace that throne which has a fiery stream coming out of it come to it for mercy but don't just come for mercy what does it say next that you may find mercy and obtain what grace to help in time of need now what is why does paul say mercy and grace I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, I've thought of mercy and grace. I understand they're different words, but pretty much doesn't that mean the same thing? Isn't grace just about being forgiven? Isn't that what grace is all about? Obviously, there must be a difference. Here's a different word used. He uses charis instead of eleos, the word for mercy. He uses a completely different word here, and he says you may come and you may obtain mercy, and specifically uh, obtain grace, Grace, and find grace to help in time of need. There's a specific time period, a time frame, when we can find that grace. Something that helps me to recognize God's gift of grace is to think about our own economy today. In our economy today, we trust in dollars, right? So I have here in my Bible... Couple ten dollar bills. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus has treasures that are are overflowing; they're abundant That uh, that God can give us grace that is is beyond anything that we can imagine. But I'm not a very wealthy individual, so today I found twenty dollars at home, and then I got here and I asked that somebody would help me to find two ten dollar bills. I asked a number of you for my one dollars bill. Because I wish I could have come with a $100 bill today and asked for 10 $10 bills, but I didn't have one at home. But these dollars represent something that has taken place because of my work. I've worked, and I've received pay for it. Now, we could argue that obviously I had the strength from God, and I worked because of that. And, but I'm not talking about that, just... In our economy, these dollars are mine because of the labor that I put in, the hours that I put in to work. So I have these $20 represented by two $10 bills. And I just want to say that today, this is a podium of grace. Because I know that some of you today probably didn't come with any money at all. And maybe some of you are even wondering, how are you going to pay a gas bill? And so all I want to say today is that there's forgiveness available, there's mercy available, but today there's also grace available. It's based on work that you didn't do, but there is money available here for any of you, I should say the first two of you, who need ten dollars. All you have to do is come and get it. But there is an opportunity for grace. There is $10 sitting right here for somebody who needs $10. Now maybe we live in a society where $10 isn't that valuable, but to me $10 means a lot. That means I could get paid for my wife and I to have lunch some places But here's the problem. If we don't sense our need, if we're Laodicean and we keep sitting in the pew while the $10 is there, it's not going to help you. You've got to come and get the $10. It's not yours. This could take a long time. There is $10... Apparently everybody here, I bet there's some kids here who there's $10 that you could have. Yana, I know how you go at school and you're, you tried to sell me a lizard. I'm thinking that you could use $10. Lexi, $10? All you have to do is walk up here and grab the $10. And I think I'll just sit down until one of you decides to come up here and get the $10 because this could take a long time. All right, Marley's going to get one. Who's going to get the other one? All right, Yana. Now, hold up those $10 bills. You can go back to your seats, but hold those up. Now, can you go to the store with that and actually buy something, Marley? Yes, you can. Do you know what you want to buy already? I bet you already have it. No, you don't know? Okay, that's okay. You can take that $10 and you can actually use it. It's yours. It's for you to use in whatever way you choose. But it was from my work. It was from my effort. And it's a free gift to you. But does the fact that it was because of my work make it any different for you? you, Does it make it not real money? Does it make it not real in what you can do with it? No. Marley knows for sure. He can take that $10 to the bank and it will result in something because it is valuable. Friends, there's an infinite supply of grace available to you and me. And it's not because of any works that we've done. It's because Jesus is infinitely powerful and has done all works of perfect righteousness. And He has offered you an infinite supply of grace. That grace is real. It actually changes and transforms who we are. Sometimes we get the picture of grace as the same thing as mercy, that it just forgives us. But grace, if you read through the Bible, is so much more amazing, so much more powerful than mercy. I, or, or than just just forgiveness, I should say. Grace is such an incredibly powerful thing. This is why you find Paul in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he's having this affliction, he's having this sickness, and he's begging God that he would take this affliction from him, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you see the equation of grace and strength? He says, my strength will help your weakness. My grace will help your weakness. Paul was physically sick. He had this thorn in the side. It was possibly his eyesight was his problem, and Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. He's not just saying, Paul, I forgive you, and so it's okay that you're sick. He's saying, I actually want to give you strength. I actually want to give you something that will change your life. Here is my grace. It's because of what I've done. You can't boast about it. You're not saved because of what you've done. But here is my grace for you actually to have as your own. Use it for what life brings you, for what you face in life. And so Paul, after that, says, well, most gladly then, I'm going to boast in my infirmities, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because grace isn't just forgiveness. Grace is power. Grace is strength. And you have access to come boldly to the throne of the entire universe and to ask for grace. Isn't that what it says here? You're able to go to the throne of grace. So here's the question. Why aren't we going for more grace? Why aren't we looking for more of what Jesus has to offer us? Why do I go through life trying in my own strength and so frustrated that I fail time and time again when Jesus says, you can come to my throne of grace and find as much as you need? I want it, don't you? I want those streams, those floods of grace to help in time of need. But it's crucial that in order to accept this gift, we have to actually pursue it. We have to actually come up and grab it. Yana had to actually leave the pew and walk up here and grab the $10 or she would have never had it. We have to recognize our need. Do you see what the critical problem for Laodicea is? They feel like they're rich and increased with good. I don't need that $10. I'm fine. I understand about the gospel. I understand that Jesus saves me. I understand all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, do you really get it? Will you really allow me? Because what does he go on to say at the end? He says, I'm actually outside the door. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus actually tells them, verse 19, as many as I love, Phileo, that close brotherly love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Laodicea has a problem. Jesus is knocking on the door saying, Hey, I have an infinite supply of grace and it's available for you. Do you want it? Do you want me to come into your heart? Do you want for us to have this fellowship, this friendship that will set you on fire, that will turn this world upside down? Or do you feel like you're okay? Do you feel like you're doing all right? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, talks a little bit more about this self deception talking about the Laodicean church specifically it says self-deception is upon them here it says them but remember who is Laodicea that's me so easy to apply to the person sitting in the pew next to me even but this is me I am living in Laodicea I am Laodicean self-deception is upon me during the calm, what firmness they manifest, what courageous sailors they make. But when the furious tempests of trial and temptation come, lo, their souls are shipwrecked. Men may have excellent gifts and good abilities, splendid qualifications, but one defect, one secret sin indulge will prove to be to the character what the worm-eaten plank does to the ship, utter disaster and ruin. Go back with me to our story in Acts chapter 27. Paul sailing on his way to Rome. If only the centurion would listen to him, but the centurion is determined that the sailors know better. They feel like everything's okay. It seems like the south wind has died down. It's okay to sail. It's going to be fine. The weather looks like it's going to be favorable. But as they sail along, Acts chapter 27 verse 13, it says, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Then verse 14, It doesn't take very long, but by that time it's too late. And there's coming a moment that will be too late for Laodicea. That's why Jesus said, I wish that you were hot or cold, but there's going to come a moment when I actually vomit you out of my mouth. I'm at the door knocking. I want this relationship, but eventually time is going to come to an end. Verse 14, But not not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclydon. So when the ship was caught, It was caught by surprise by this wind that actually had a name, this ferocious wind. The ship is caught and then it's too late and it could not head into the wind. We let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Here they are. they're, They're being driven by the wind. They can't get to land and they're driven by another island and they secure at least the lifeboat. They pull it up. But they're going along... And they're out of control. Some of you may feel today that your life is out of control. You feel like things are spiraling out of control in your life. There's so many things going on that you don't know how to handle. You feel like there's a storm in your life. Could it be that Jesus has allowed that storm in your life? Not because He doesn't feel your pain. He doesn't know what you're going through. But because He wants you to sense your need of coming to the throne of grace. He wants you to know that today you need to obtain grace in time of need. The ship, verse 17, says When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. It's a significant. So here you have this ship that's breaking apart at the seams and they take these cables, cables that had probably just been lying on the deck of the ship as they had sailed south and they thought everything was going to be okay and they weren't even sure why they had these cables with them, but they took these cables along with them as they sailed to the south. And here it says they take these cables and what do they do with these cables? They use it to undergird the ship. So they somehow would put it under the ship. They tied it all together. They're trying to hold the ship together. They're fearful that the waves and the wind are actually going to cause that ship to break apart right there. They recognize that they have a need. Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, that you may find grace to help when in time of need. Here they are recognizing that they have a very significant need. Now something very interesting about Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, that when it says you may obtain grace to help in time of need, the word for help isn't just the common word for help throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's a word that is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Boethea. Boetheia is the word for help. this word for what grace can be found at the throne of God. This grace can be brought in to help. Boethea. That's what grace does. This is what you can go is to get this grace that will help in time of need. How many times did I say Boethea was used in the New Testament? Twice. Any guesses where else Boethea is used in the New Testament? Acts chapter 27 and verse 17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables. Literally, they used "boythea." They used helps is what the word is there. Literally, they used helps to undergird the ship, to hold the ship together when it was breaking apart. This is what grace is for in your life. It's to hold you together when the storms are raging around you, when things are going wrong and you can't understand why it's happening. You go to the throne of grace and say, please, I need Boetheia. Would you undergird me today? Would you hold this ship together? That's what our church needs, is Thea to hold our church together, to undergird this church, to hold it through the storm that's coming. But too often, the cable is just there on the deck, coiled up, because we don't recognize the storm that we face in life. But for me, over the past couple weeks, there's been a few different circumstances and things that have happened in my life, and it's very interesting, why were they going into this storm? Whose choice was it? It was virtually everybody's choice on the ship except for Paul. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm facing a problem, I believe that God is powerful enough to get me out of problems. But when I say, hey, I caused this problem. I'm here because of the things, the mistakes that I've made, the the foresight that I should have had. Because I didn't do this, I'm here and that's why I have this problem and so God's not going to get me out of this. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like, yeah, grace is great and God will help me if I didn't get myself into the problem? Notice what happens in this storm. Notice what Paul says to them. In verse, well, in verse 21, it says, But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. You made a mistake. You're here in this storm because you refused to listen. To Jesus' voice through me, I tried to tell you that God was telling you not to sail, but you sailed anyway. And not to have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss, but look at verse 22. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and of whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God has granted you. Paul had been asking for these members, this this group of people to be saved along with him. And the word for granted there is the same root word for grace, charis. God has granted you life. Friends, we need Boethia. We need that grace that comes from the throne and it comes when we come boldly. When we come to ask for mercy and to obtain grace to help in time of need. Will we go to the throne of grace? Will we look for that mercy? Will we allow God to be the one who holds us together? Like I said, the past couple of weeks, there were a couple of different situations. One was for Leah and I, uh, something that we'd been praying about, something that we were personally facing, and it just felt like everything kept going wrong. Felt like things just weren't working out. Like, God, we've been praying for this for years, but what's going on? Where are you? What's, why don't you provide for this? Then there was another situation situation that I felt like I was in because of my own mistakes, because I hadn't seen what was coming, because I hadn't stopped something early enough, and I was in this situation where it felt like things were breaking up around me, and it was taking up time that I didn't have, and I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to help, and everything I did was just making a bigger mess. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful that Jesus can take our mistakes and He can use those things to open our eyes to our need for grace in times of need. Otherwise, I'm Laodicean. I sit there thinking I've got it together. I'm fine. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Let's go on about my life. And I'm not really clinging to that grace, that power that I need to help. But during that week... I remember I read a psalm a day, and I remember opening up to Psalm chapter 71. As I opened and I just read the first few verses, I heard God speaking so clearly to me. Do you know where you need help right now? Do you know where to come? Do you know where you're going to find the grace that you need right now? In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape incline your ear to me and save me be my strong refuge to which i may resort continually you have given me the commandment you've given the commandment to save me for you are my rock and my fortress and in this situation these circumstances that i was facing i realized what i needed was a savior Not a Savior who is far off, but one who I could approach the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find help, find grace to help, to buoy Thea, to hold me together, to undergird my life in a time of need. That's what we need as a church. We need grace to help, to buoy Thea, to hold us together, to hold us together in the storms of life. Without this, we'll never see ourselves through. We'll never be able to go through in the end. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, puts it this way about the Christian life, page 158. A Christian has victory over his besetments, over his passions. There is a remedy for the sin-sick soul, and that remedy is in Jesus. There's a remedy wherever you are, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what's taking place in your life, there is a remedy for you, and that remedy is Jesus. Precious Savior, His grace is sufficient for the weakness. Remember for the weakest. Remember, grace is strength, grace is power. It's Jesus' righteousness filling you and living out Jesus' life in you. And the strongest must also have his grace or perish. That's the danger of Laodicea. They understand, but they're not letting Christ live out his life in them. I saw, this is a beautiful part how this grace could be obtained. This is how you get this grace, this power, this strength that you need for the weak times in your life, for the stormy times in your life, and really for the strong times in your life when you think you have it all together. Go to your closet and there alone plead with God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Remember, He's the beginning, the author, the source of creation. He is the one who can change our hearts and fill us with love, fill us with those things that we so desperately need. Be in earnest, be sincere, fervent prayer avails much. Friends, prayer isn't just an exercise. Prayer isn't just so you receive forgiveness. Prayer is so that you receive grace that will actually empower you to live the Christian life. And it's because of his righteousness, it's because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of anything that you have and any worthiness of your own. goes on to say this, Jacob-like wrestle in prayer. Do you remember the story of Jacob? Jacob was in the situation he was because of his own mistakes, and God tried to get his attention right away. Jacob had betrayed his dad, had, had lied to his dad in order to get something good, a blessing, but... Then it resulted in the opposite, and he had to flee from his homeland. And as he was fleeing, he had that dream. What did he see in his dream? He saw Jacob's ladder, that ladder representing how to connect him to heaven. It represented Jesus. But he didn't really get it. He went on about trying to solve his own problems, trying to figure out his own way Still trying to get the blessing in his own way until finally he's on his way back and now he's facing Esau, his angry brother, with 400 warriors who's about to crush out his life and the life of all of his family. And in that situation where he recognizes, I'm here because of the mistakes that I have made, he began to wrestle with God in prayer. And Jeremiah says that in the end, you and I are going to face a time called Jacob's trouble where we feel like we're in this situation because we have made mistakes But what we need to do is to wrestle with Jesus in prayer, to wrestle at the throne of grace, to obtain mercy and to find grace in time of need. And that's what happened with Jacob when he clung to that messenger who he later learned was the pre-incarnate Christ. As he clung to him, he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. goes on to say, Jesus in the garden sweat great drops of blood. Jesus also is our example. Hebrews goes on to describe how in the days of his flesh, with much crying and earnestness, even sweating drops of blood, he pled with God and became perfect through that pleading. He became complete through it. Not that there was anything lacking as far as sin, but He was looking for that grace, that power, just like you and I can tap into. Jesus on earth relied upon His Father in heaven, just like you and I can do. Do not leave your closet until you feel strong in God. You may have a walk-in closet. Use your closet and actually go and literally do this. Go there and say, God, I'm dealing with these problems. I'm dealing with these struggles. Go to that closet. There's nothing holy about a closet, but it blocks everything else out. And actually do this at my at our our condo. Or if you don't have a closet, find some place that's private. Find a place where there's nobody going to hear, where it's just you and Jesus, and you can cry out saying, Jesus, I need mercy. I need grace to help me, to buoy Thea, to undergird me, to give me the strength to overcome these things that I'm facing. I need your grace, Jesus. And don't leave your closet until you feel strong in God. Then watch. And just as long as you watch and pray, you can keep these evil besetments under. And the grace of God can and will appear to you. I can tell you sometimes it's not explainable how it takes place. But in my life, as I've gone to the closet, as I've gone to that time alone with Jesus and pled with him, please, I need your help right now. Sometimes it's the last thing that makes sense but it always brings that peace. His Word always has those promises. He's that refuge to which you can continually resort. So I stand here today. Problems haven't all been figured out in my life. The situations haven't been solved, but I can tell you, I have peace this morning because I have an intercessor in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary before the throne of all power in the universe from which streams a fiery stream that will set my heart on fire, that will set this Laodicean heart on fire for good works. How about you? Will you take time? Will you refuse to leave your closet until you receive grace to help in time of need? Will you take advantage of Jacob's ladder? If that's your desire... I want to invite you to pray with me, to kneel in prayer as I pray. Father, we come to you in prayer, needing desperately that which only Jesus is worthy of, and that is strength from the throne room of the universe. We thank you that you love us as much as you loved your only begotten Son that you love Jesus more because of what he's done for us. And so, God, we come with urgency. Forgive us for our self-deception, for our pride, that we haven't recognized how desperately we need grace. But we're here to ask for grace to help, to undergird us, to hold us together. We're here to plead with grace. And God, not just right now, in this moment during church, But throughout this week, Father, we want to commit, we're here on our knees saying, we're not going to let you go until you bless us, until you pour out those riches of grace, until you pour out your Holy Spirit on us. We will not let you go until you bless us. Lord, may you be our ladder that connects us with all power in heaven and on earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.